last week we looked at just verses 20 and 21, uh, and the question was asked of Jesus, when is the kingdom of God coming? Uh, and, and I'm not going to re-preach that whole sermon. You can go back and look at it and, and listen to it again. But, but we have to kind of look, understand just a little bit, because if we look at verse 22, Jesus is pivoting off of what he talked to the Pharisees about in answering the question of the kingdom of God, saying that the kingdom of God is, is here. It's, it's in your midst. It's not something that you're looking for in a particular sign, not over there, or hey, it's look here. Jesus says that the kingdom of God is in your midst. And, and, and we did a lot of work last week kind of uh, uh, unpacking what that means from the Old Testament and why the Pharisees would be asking such a question as when is the kingdom of God coming? What's their understanding? And we even unpacked the, uh, what most of us know, the signs that they were looking for was a military takeover of, of Israel, and that was a sign of the kingdom. And so we, un, we unpacked a lot of that and why they believed that, why they thought that whoever comes to, to, to free them would come as a military leader, like a Moses, like the hammer, you guys might remember that from last week, um, uh, would come and set them, set them free. But Jesus is saying, no, we're not looking for signs, there's no more shadows, but the substance is here, right? So, so understand that that's the question that he, he, how he answers the question to the Pharisees. But what we will see in verse 22 now is that he turns to his disciples, right? So he, now he wants to talk to his, to his disciples. So let's look at um, verse 22 this morning. I have too much water now. You guys are going to make me have to go to the bathroom in the middle of my sermon. Verse 22. And as he said to his disciples, so there's the pivot, right? To his disciples. The days are coming when you desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his, his day. But first... He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the day of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They will be eating and drinking and marrying and being given into marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating, they were drinking, they were buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down and take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in, one, in the bed, and one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. The other one will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And this is the word of the Lord. 
And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear it and to see its holy, inspired, inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. I'm getting just a slight ring, Carson. Can you pull that down just a little bit? It might be just my ears. Um, some of you, this morning, reading your scriptures, most of us are probably rolling with an ESV, but some of you have different translations of the text. And you might have noticed, people reading the ESV probably didn't, but you might have noticed that we went from verse 35 to verse 37. Does anybody's Bible go from verse 35 to verse 37 like mine does? Does anybody have a verse 36? Okay, so we have a couple that have verse 36. Now, now let's just kind of talk about that for a second if you, if you notice that, because what I don't want you to do is I don't want you to throw your Bibles away, okay? Um, it's not like you know how you go to a building and they skip the 13th floor and just the numbers? There is a 13th floor, but they're just, they skip it. It's not like that. It's not like verse 36 is bad luck or something, so let's leave all th- verse 36 is out. Um, so here's the deal. Verse 36, there is a verse 36. The ESV, though, omits verse 36. And here's verse 36. I'm going to read it to you. It's two men will be in a field, and one will be taken, and the other is left. Now, if you looked at it, verse 35, it's right in line with verse 35, right? We're talking about two women, and now we got two, two men. And it seems to fit well with verse 35. So the question we want to ask is, what's the deal? Uh, so, so here it is. With, with all the manuscripts that were gathered together uh, for the put of, that were available for the uh, Luke's gospel, there was most of them actually didn't have a verse 36. So let's go back to when, they, when this was written and then copied, the manuscripts were copied over and over to be dispersed to the church. A good portion of those manuscripts didn't have a verse 36. And mind you, they didn't have verse numbers back then either. So it's not like, why would they skip verse 36? Well, it just wasn't there in half of them. And then in half of them, it was there. Okay? So in the ESV, uh, uh, they chose to omit it because it's missing out of half of those, uh, half of those manuscripts. Now, n- no need to fear. Verse 36 is actually quoted perfectly in Matthew. Okay, so it's in the Gospel of Matthew. So it is a biblical statement. So that's probably why half of those manuscripts have it, because they were writing this and they said, well, wait a minute, didn't Matthew say this? So I'm going to put it in and some of them didn't. So that's the way it went, way it went down. So your Bibles are still reliable. Your, the, the Word of God is still inerrant and it's still infallible. Add 36, don't add 36. It doesn't change the point of the message. It doesn't change what Jesus is is saying. So uh, if you run across that kind of thing again, you're looking at the numbers and there's a number missing, look at your study Bibles and, and you'll, you'll quickly be able to see this and you'll understand then what I'm, what I'm telling you. One day we will talk about how the Bible was put together and manuscripts in the canon and how it was all brought together and, and we'll be able to uh, have a little bit more information when we deal with some of these textual criticisms uh, again because there's, other, um, there's others that are not many, but there's others too that can be a little confusing. So we got that straight. Let's move on. Just felt like I needed to, to talk, tell y'all because I didn't want you to be confused about the, the Bible and why verse 36 isn't there. So our passage this morning, as we've just read it, is going to deal with end times, right? Uh, and it's going to deal with what we call eschatology, uh, the study of end times, end things, last things. Um, when you find 
end times text throughout the Bible, and, and, and it's throughout the scripture. You, you read about in this apocalyptic kind of language. You know, you, you hear a lot of darkness and judgment and, and, and things like that, the rapture. Uh, but it's throughout the Bible. It's in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. And, and I think for, for most Christians, including myself, right, including myself here, uh, is that it just seems very mysterious and coded. Like, like I'm, not, I'm not really meant to understand it completely, and there's some truth to that as well. And, but it's just really hard to understand. So, so, so let's be honest. When we're reading through our Bibles and we, we get to the second half of the book of Daniel, and, or we get to some of those places in Ezekiel, or maybe it's like the entirety of Matthew 24, or most of Revelation, we, we can admit that that's some hard stuff. And, and when we know it's coming up on our reading plan, we're a little discouraged by it, because it's hard to understand sometimes. And you know you're going to get confused after the first couple lines. That's okay. And, and then when you, you, you deal with all the, the viewpoints that start coming your way, and maybe you've You've, you grew up in a, a situation or context or a church where you've had people tell you about the different millennium views and the, the pre, post, mid-tribulation, etc., etc. And frankly, when you start dealing with all of that, it gets quite confusing, right, Kenny? It can get quite confusing. He's our, he's our elder in charge of eschatology, by the way. He's like, really? I didn't, he knows that. He is. He knows his stuff. But what I found really amazing, though, here in Luke 17 and you might have noticed this just reading it, is Jesus makes it the exact opposite. It's, it's actually really easy to understand. It's, it's not that mysterious. It's not that hard to, to grasp. Each and every one of us, we can read this passage, and I think we can understand what Jesus is telling us about the consummation, the coming, the final coming of the kingdom of God. So, so right after, off the bat, like I already said this, that Jesus pivots off of this discussion with the disciples, and he, and he addresses his disciples. He turns to his disciples. And, and once again, we, we have to take note that that's really important. Because if Jesus is talking to his disciples, he's not talking to the world. If Jesus is talking to his followers, then he's not talking to his unfollowers. He is talking to people who are following him. He is talking to us. Very specifically, he's talking to those who follow him. And so he wants to talk to us. And after answering the question to the Pharisees, he then turns to his disciples. He then turns to, to us through the word of God. And he not only answers that question of when, when the kingdom of God coming, saying it's here, it's in their midst. But now Jesus is concerned that the disciples would know and we would know some really important things about the second, king, the second coming, about his second coming, when the kingdom would be consummated. These are the things you need to know about the coming of the kingdom of God and the second coming, Jesus is saying, to us and to his church. So if you are a disciple, then these are the things that we need to know about the second coming. These are the things that we need to be concerned about. And I'm going to distill those into three things. All right, and I'll go ahead and give those to you. First, Jesus wants his disciples to understand that when he comes back, you will not miss it. Okay? You won't miss it. 
So that's first. Number two, second, same thing. Jesus tells them what must be first. What must be first in order to be ready for the second coming. He tells us what's first in order to be ready for the second coming. Third, Jesus then warns us. He warns us of something that we might love that might then make us not ready for the coming of the kingdom. And I know that sounds a little, little confusing, but we will we'll come back to that at the end. That's our last point. So let's dig in. Point number one, you won't miss it. So Jesus tar- starts off by telling of the reality in verse 22 of what they're going to experience as disciples living in the age of the already but not yet, right? So he tells them, this is the way it's going to be. Verse 22, the days are coming when you will desire to see the days of the Son of Man, right? You're going to long to see me come back, but you won't see it. Verse 22 there, right? So, So again, we said this last week of we desire the coming of the kingdom. We want Jesus to come back. We're praying for that. We are still living in the frustration with sin and and temptation and just living in a fractured and broken, fallen world that is stained with sin. There's a a frustration and angst that builds up in in Christians and and being able to uh, uh, live in that already but not yet. And so for most Christians from the first century So when Jesus returns, this is going to be their experience. They're going to long for Jesus to come back, but they will not see him. That's the the tension, the frustration, the battle of living in the already but not yet. Already, because as we saw last week, Jesus has come. And he is, the kingdom is in our midst. And the Holy Spirit is conforming us now and already as we live in, in such a fallen world. And that's the not yet. Not yet because we still live in a fallen world. The kingdom of God has not been consummated yet. It hasn't been finalized. Those, those promises that we know from Christ and from God have not come in their complete fulfillment yet. That's the not yet. So this is why Jesus tells us, as he's told them, he tells us that you're going to be longing and you're going to be desiring for his return. And he goes on with the rest of the passage is because he knows the temptation that's going to come our way because that longing is going to be so deep. We're going to long for signs. We're going to long for wonders. We're going to long for for people to come our way and tell us that they're the self-proclaimed prophecy experts or tell us that they are the Messiah. You know, throughout Christian history, and especially in recent centuries, last two centuries in particular, there have been many people who have spent their lives on just informing people what they think, and they claim themselves to be authority. And Jesus is warning us of those people right there in verse 23. And he, and he, and he tells them, he says, don't follow them. I mean, it's very simple. When, when these self-proclaimed experts come along, when these, when these self-proclaimed messiahs come along, Jesus says, don't follow them. And, and, and this is Jesus being pretty blatant. 
I mean, this is pretty obvious. I mean, he says it right there. Don't follow them. So when, when people tell you to come follow them, Jesus is saying, no, just call them a cheese stick and avoid them. Call them a cheese stick and avoid them. If they come out with a date and they come out with a time and they're pointing to signs, stay away. Don't follow them. Yes, we're going to long. People long. So, so why do people do this, right? Why do people want to go after them? Because there's such a deep longing for the Son of Man to return. And when you mix that with immaturity, and you mix that again with some more bad doctrine, and there's little to no authority of a good church over their life, that is a recipe for those false teachers to come in and have their way in their hearts and to draw them away. The false teachers live and prey upon people who are immature, who have bad doctrine, and who are not a part of good churches. And the only sign that Jesus actually gives us, verse 24, is the only sign that we need. Look at verse 24. It's a lightning bolt. I love that description there. We know what a lightning bolt, especially these last couple days. We've seen some lightning bolts, man. That's amazing. Reminds me of when I lived in Florida. Just lightning was awesome. It, it, it'll put you down if it's close. And the lightning that Jesus tells us of verse 24 is one that no one will miss it. It will be the most public sign in that everybody everywhere will be able to see. And I think it will be like a literal 24,000 mile long lightning bolts simultaneously ringing all over the earth at the same time from the Middle East over Africa through Asia in Europe and across North America from pole to pole east to west nobody will miss it you will not need TBN to explain it to you you will not need a weather channel app to describe to you the natural phenomena Everybody will know that something massive has happened, that Christ has come back. Brothers and sisters, you will not miss it. That's what Jesus tells You won't miss it. So you don't need cheese balls to tell you to look in the sky for this on next Thursday. You don't need that. Jesus says, you'll know it when I come. And he illustrates that point with the Old Testament. In Noah... And in Lot, those people who were under the judgment of God in Noah and in Lot, they, they didn't need anyone to tell them that judgment was upon them. With, with Noah, when, the rain, when it started raining and then water started gushing up from like every orifice of the earth, no one needed to tell them that judgment was upon them. And in Sodom, when it was literally raining fire upon their heads, no one had to tell them that judgment was upon them. Everybody knew it. And like the whole earth, we will all know when Christ comes back. It will be a holy, terrifying experience for the world. When you look down in verse 37, you see that. You kind of see a reality because the, the disciples asked, you know, when? Where or where, Lord? And Jesus says, where the corpse is, that's bodies. Where the body is in, in the desert or in the woods, you'll know it's there because the vultures are there. And another way of saying that, he is saying, my second coming will be unmistakable so that 
So do not believe anyone else. It will be unmistakable when I come back. Have no doubt. You will not need anybody tell you to look. Look over here. Look, look at this person over here. Come to me. Come to me. I'm the Messiah. And yet, what, what have we seen in so many recent years? In recent years, we've seen people throughout these recent years and even in our own uh, lifetimes where, where someone comes along and, and gives evidence and they show their, their math skills about adding verse numbers together and, and, and numbers here and numbers there and signs of hurricanes and tornadoes and, and, and they say, come follow me. We've had people come say, I, I, I know when he's coming. Come with me down to Jonestown. No, I'm the Messiah. Come with me to my rundown compound in Waco, Texas, because that's where the Messiah lives. And if people would just listen to Jesus right here, there would have never been the Heaven's Gate cult massacre. Look up that scary story. And all these people, they died because they listened to someone say the kingdom of God is over here. And so Jesus is telling us, his disciples, is don't get caught up in those things. Don't, don't be worried about those things. Don't, don't, don't trouble yourself in those things because when I come back, you'll know it. You won't mistake it. And if you won't mistake it, then it's not something you have to worry about. Brothers and sisters, if, if you're dabbling in such things, then, then turn from those, those charlatans. Turn them off and hear the words of Jesus. Don't follow them. You'll know when I come back. I love that. You'll know when I'm back. So, so there is, in, in that reality, that's not what we hang our hats on. That's not what we hang our, 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 our lives on. That's not what we're banking on there. But here's our the, here are now the things, which are my next two points, that Jesus wants us to lock into. He wants us to, to be hung up on in these next two points. And then the second point is, is, the, is really the first thing that Jesus wants us to zero in on. Look at verse 25, and you'll see where I've been saying first a lot. Verse 25. But he says, but, but first... But what? First, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Now, again, the simplicity of Jesus teaching us. We, every one of us in this room, most of us in this room, we know what Jesus is saying here. We, we know what he is saying here. So, so before the second coming, right, before the lightning bolts that go all around the world, Jesus is first pointing his disciples to the cross. See that? He's pointing us to the cross and that he must suffer and be rejected. Now, again, this isn't code. Like this is straight up from Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, smitten and afflicted by God, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. This is Isaiah 53. First, the son of man was going to be is going to suffer and be rejected. So Jesus is pointing them to a proper understanding of God redeeming his people comes first, and it then comes through through a great sacrifice. It comes through Christ. 
It comes through the Son of God, through substitutionary atonement of the Son of God, or in this, what we've been reading, the Son of Man, which is the very purpose of why he is there in his first coming. So we have to keep the cross first. Now, now here's what I think that that means and how we can really apply this to us. Isn't it interesting that in a conversation or teaching about the second coming, all the, all the experiences that you might have had with that, and the second coming, the consummation of the kingdom of God, isn't it interesting that in a conversation that Jesus is having about the second coming, that he's pointing them to the cross? Isn't that interesting? Why is that? Here's why I think he does that. Because he doesn't want us to get all caught up in the second coming and completely miss the purpose and the importance of his first coming. That's living in the already but not yet. He doesn't want us to miss it. And actually, if you read, uh, I think it's 2 Thessalonians, I can be corrected later, the, the church in Thessalonica had an over-realized eschatology. They, they were just sitting around doing nothing all day long, waiting for Jesus to come back. And Paul tells them, stop being so lazy, get a job, go to work, or we're going to kick your butt out of the church. Jesus is going to come back when he comes back. So don't miss what's first, and that is the cross. Have you ever... Have you ever noticed then that, that those who we've talked to who are just infatuated with eschatology, who are infatuated with the end times and everything about the prophecies and how it's all going to go down, I mean, they have charts for their charts, right? They have charts for their charts. And, and if you start talking about eschatology or Jesus is coming back, praise God, man, they're, they're going to pull them out on their phones. They're going to unfold them from their pocket like this. And they're going to they're bust them out. And they're going to try to convert you to their view of the rapture or their view of the millennium or post-trib, mid-trib, pre-trib kind of stuff. Right? Some of you probably don't clue what I'm talking about. But there are people out there that will just try to convert you on those things. The, the self-proclaimed prophets on TV, right? The experts of eschatology and, and the internet. Now let me ask you the very blaring question to you about them, the people we know and the people on TV. Have you ever noticed that those experts really do not care about the gospel? They never point people to the cross. Jesus, with the second coming, he goes straight to the cross. For him, it would be backwards for us. It would be, or him was forward. For us, it would be backwards. He takes them right to the cross. So, so all these people, they, they, say, they say they care about the cross. They say they care about the gospel. But all they talk about is signs and prophecy. But here, Jesus is talking about the consummation of the kingdom of God, the end times, by pointing them and his disciples to the cross. Our eschatology is formed and made from our theology of the cross. If you, have, if you don't understand the cross, then you will not understand the end times. So if we get all caught up in the end times, then we're going to miss the beauty, the joy, the peace, the reconciliation that only comes through the cross. And then totally miss the purpose of living for God's glory today. 
Now, here's what I'm not saying. Brothers and sisters, please do not hear that I'm not saying that we should not anticipate the Lord's coming. We shouldn't, that's not what I'm saying. And we should study eschatology. And we should have an understanding of the various views. And certainly we can have our own opinions on such views. But as Christians, as disciples, as a church, that's, that's not our message. That's not the message that has changed you. That's not the message that has changed me. The message that has changed us has been the message of the cross. It's the message uh, of the cross. That's the message that has changed our hearts. That's the message that has changed our lives. And that's the message that we proclaim. We preach the cross. And we remember the cross. Because if we are not prepared and reckoned ourselves with the cross and the message of the cross and the work of Christ on the cross, then inevitably what Jesus is saying is you will never be ready for the second coming. So first, he must suffer and be rejected. And again, we can point to Noah and Lot. We can point to, to, to Noah and the Lot. The, the people were not ready for God's judgment, which is why they never responded. They didn't respond to God's word and the proclamation of judgment that was coming and a proclamation to repent. But notice in those illustrations, I mean, we know something about the time of Noah, and we know stuff about Sodom and Gomorrah that Jesus doesn't let us in on there, does he? We know that Sodom was a wicked place. And we know that in the times of Noah, the people were wicked. And Jesus doesn't even say that, does he? What does he say? He says they were just going about their regular activities. They were eating and drinking and buying and selling. They were marrying and planting and building, doing all the things that people do in their normal lives. So their problem was not their sin necessarily just there, as it was great. But what damned them to their destruction was their indifference. Their indifference to the proclamation of judgment. The big difference between the times of Noah and Sodom, compared to the people of Nineveh who repented. It was their indifference to the message. And it's also our indifference to Jesus himself, to the cross, to the gospel, that, that can be so offensive to us that would lead us just to live our indifferent lives. And it calls us to miss the cross. They, the reason why they gave no attention to their wicked sin is because they gave no thought to Jesus and the necessity of the cross. The cross is where Jesus would bear the punishment and rejection that the elect deserved so that in the second coming we would not bear the judgment that we deserve. And Christ has paid it in full. And Jesus is saying if that's what's going to happen, if that's what's true, and disciples, followers of mine, remember the cross. Keep that first. Keep that first. Because if you have not dealt with the cross, and if your faith is not in Christ, who is the center of the cross, then the second coming is really 
bad news for you. But here Jesus is saying is remember the cross. Be reckoned with the cross. Always keep the cross in your hearts and in your minds, even before the second coming. So that's point number two. First thing, that was, and that was the first thing that Jesus wanted us to lock onto. But the second thing that Jesus wants to lock onto, which is actually the third point, don't worry about all that, is he wants us to see that there is a warning. He puts a warning in here. A warning for those that follow him to not love the world. A warning to not love the world. Look at verse 31 with me. Look what he says. He says, on that day, which means that's when he's coming back, on that day, lightning bolts and everything, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away, and likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. So what is he saying here? He is saying, when, when I come back, don't, don't grab your stuff. Don't, don't try to pack a bug out bag. Don't worry about your wealth. Don't worry about your cars or your crops or your, your fields. And, and to us, that may sound a little ridiculous. Like, why would we, why would we deal with any of that? Jesus, come back, man. I'm, I'm ready. I'm gone, right? But Jesus knows our hearts. And that's why he says in verse 32, remember Lot's wife. You remember Lot's wife? Lot and his family fleeing Sodom as God's judgment was raining down on the city. And you remember the angel told them to get out. And whatever you do, do not look back. Keep going. Don't stop until you get to the next town. And why? Why would the angel tell them to do that? Why would God command this of to, to uh, Lot and his family and his wife? And the reason is, is because in that city... In Sodom, there was nothing redeemable. There was nothing redeemable. There was nothing worth saving. But she looked back. She thought there was. Her heart was still there at some place with something. And when she looked back, disobeying God's, God's command, she turned into a pillar of salt. So what does Jesus mean here when he says, remember Lot's wife? Well, this is, this is kind of some biblical theology for us because Jesus is connecting the dots for us to the New Testament. And that's in verse 33. This is what it means for us. Because he says, whoever seeks to preserve his life, preserve his life in worldly comforts, worldly things, friends and family, the safety net of homes and job and security and bank accounts. Looking back, coming down out of the house, grabbing things as we go, looking back at our crops, whoever seeks to preserve that life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. That's familiar. We've heard Jesus say that to us before in Luke. So what Jesus is telling us is to be careful that your instinct is not like Lot's wife. To hang on to this world. 
its comforts and its safety and its things. Because if it does, what does that say about us? It says that we have, may have never trusted the Savior. And here's the thing. The person on the rooftop, the housetop, they were watching. They were waiting. And when he comes home, when Jesus comes back, they ran through the house and they still were grabbing things. So, so we may think we may be ready, but what it may reveal of us is that we've never trusted in him because we valued those things over him. We value the world over his kingdom and his glory. We may value those things more. What will be your instinct? Is it to hang on? To grab something? To look back? It's, that's going to be such a revealing moment, won't it? It'll be such a revealing moment of what we really love, what we really believe in, where our assurance and where our security lies, and even the things that we really want. So yes, there is a strong warning for us here to not love the world. He goes on in verse 34 and 35, and in, in language of what we would say is language of the rapture, when Jesus comes back, he will, one will be taken and the, the other is left. And so this isn't a, this isn't a secret. This isn't a, a mystery. Again, as, as public as the lightning bolt, this will be public. That it would be very obvious that some are here and some are taken. Some will be taken and others will be left. But there is something more here. This, these verses illustrate for us that when Jesus comes back, there's going to be a great separation, isn't there? And I think that's what he's describing, is that there's a great separation, that one will be taken and one will be left, right? Separation that takes place. The Bible speaks of this separation throughout the scriptures. There are, there are sheep and there are goats that will be separated from each other. Believers and unbelievers will be separated from each other. The wheat and the tares will be separated from one another. There will be believers and unbelievers that will be separated from it. There are those who love the world and those who love the kingdom of God will be separated. Those who trust themselves and the things that they have and those who trust in Christ, those will be separated. And even if it is as personal as two people in the same bed, there will be that separation. And they will be dealt with according to their faith. You know, so, so, to so many churches today and Christians in our culture today, and that's a loose terminology, churches and Christian, is that they dismiss this kind of judgment, a judgment of separation. That this judgment is unloving because they can't imagine God, who is loving, will judge people this way. Their intent may be good kindness and love and tolerance. But isn't it themselves elevating themselves as the moral teachers? That they're more morally superior than even what Jesus is saying here? Because the point of this whole entire passage, Jesus is telling his disciples in a very kind, in a very tender way, brothers, be careful. I, I love you enough, brothers, to not go to hell. 
Jesus is saying this. Not a legalistic, judgmental moron who has no good for the intent of those whom they condemn. These are the words of the Savior who will suffer and bleed and die and be rejected by all men. Listen to what he is saying. When I come back, judgment comes with me. Repent. Be warned by the world. Don't look back. It's unredeemable, but I'm going to give you something in the future that's going to be more glorious than you'll ever experience here. So don't look back. Remember Lot's wife. Repent, be warned. Look to the cross. Look to me. I am in your midst. I am your justification. That's the tender kindness truth that's being proclaimed here. And he says it because he doesn't want us to go to hell. <laughs> Isn't it funny how they can just totally flip it around? Talk about depravity. But back to the warning of loving the world. I have a great quote from Richard Baxter, a Puritan pastor. He said this long ago, and I think they have the quote. They can put it up there for us. Um, it's very helpful for us. And it starts off by saying, there is a great difference between the desires of heaven in a believer and in an unbeliever. Right? Do you all see that? So there's a great difference between the desires of heaven in a believer and in an unbeliever. So I put dot, dot there because we're going to stop there for just a second. Have you ever met an unbeliever, a person who's not a Christian, and, and if there was some remote chance that they thought that, that there could be a heaven and there could be a hell, would, wouldn't they at every time choose heaven? So at, at, if there was a remote chance that they believed that those were heaven and hell were real, the unbeliever would always say, yeah, I would much rather go to heaven. Of course, who wouldn't? So keep, keep that in mind here in understanding. So here's what he's saying. The way that a believer wants heaven, the way that Christians, disciples, want heaven is way different than why an unbeliever wants heaven. Does that make sense? Here he continues, and some of you all are already reading ahead. He continues, he says, the believer prizes heaven above this world. The unbeliever prizes heaven only over hell. Did you catch that? The believer prizes, prizes heaven above this world. The unbeliever prizes heaven only over hell. To the ungodly, there is nothing that seems more desirable than this world. And therefore, he only chooses heaven over hell, but not heaven over this world. And therefore, he will not have heaven upon such choice. Do you catch what he's saying there? He's saying exactly what Jesus is saying. Remember Lot's wife. If our prize to get into heaven is only because we do not want to go to hell, only proves one thing. 
is that we have the heart of the ungodly and an unbelieving heart. But if we choose heaven over hell because we, want, we no longer want to be a part of this world, that is the choice. If you have your arms around this world, your stuff, your crops, if the place that you really belong is the world, then Jesus is saying, that is what you will get. And it won't be the kingdom. There's the warning that Jesus would have for us. So again, I want to go back to the beginning. We shouldn't be afraid of studying eschatology. Jesus made it pretty simple here, I think, for us. I'm coming back when I come back. The Father only knows, and you'll know it. That takes a lot of worry off of our, our minds when it comes to eschatology, doesn't it? That he's sovereign, and we can trust in him. And when he reveals himself, if we're still here, then you'll know. And the second is, is don't worry about those things as much as you should focus on the cross. It's the focus on the cross. The focus on Christ himself. To not try to answer questions and get stuck on things and matters that Jesus doesn't answer for us or that scripture doesn't answer for us. But when we do study the, old te- or the second coming, when we do study the consummation of the kingdom, I think Jesus is also saying, let it also roll up to what he has already shown us. Let it roll up that we can trust in his sovereignty and then we, could, we look to the cross. If our study of eschatology does not bring us back to the cross, then I think we are missing the whole point. And then is the warning to have loose holds on the things of this world but to hold tight onto him, to cherish and to love him and the work of the cross more than anything. Jesus Christ is everything. He is the maker and the goal of all creation. He is the source and the goal of our redemption and our salvation. He is the heir of all things. He is the word of God. And in him is our person as the body of Christ. And in him is our place as the fulfillment of the promised land. And he is our rule and our authority. He is our king and our destiny. He is coming back, brothers and sisters. But if he should tarry, then let us be faithful. Let us be faithful and pray. Faithful in the kingdom. The kingdom is here now. It's in our midst. And the Lord is building his kingdom. The kingdom's consummation is coming. And yes, let's look forward to this. Let's hold on to those promises when we are suffering and when we are dealing with frustration and pain and persecution in this world. But again, let's be reminded that judgment is also coming for those who do not know Christ and yet still cherish this world. And let us proclaim the gospel. Proclaim the gospel and preach the gospel so that others may come into such an eternal joy that we will experience when Christ returns. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we could trust your word. And simply we can just trust that Jesus 
It's telling us that when he comes, we will know it. And we can turn away from false teaching and false truth, but look to him and say, nope, Jesus told me. I'll know it if he comes back when I'm here. Let my focus be, let our focus be on the cross. Let our focus be on the the gospel. Let that be our center. As a church, as a people, as disciples. Oh God, as we've faced this warning this morning to not cherish the things of the world, and that we would pray that we would not look back and we would start untying the ties of the world that seem to want to entangle us every single day. To cherish this, to love this, to treasure this. But to look to our Savior and the cross. Help us as we, re- as we respond together, Lord, for your glory. Use these, these questions now to be an encouragement to one another. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.